Hello and welcome to episode 84 of Rank and Review. This episode is Stephen King Volume 3, The Horrors of Nostalgia. And it's an interesting episode. Uh, my guest this week is Mireille Smith. When I knew her best, I guess, her, she was called Mireille Arsenal. And uh, this recording marks the longest conversation that we've had in 15 years. We talk about Stephen King, which is a subject that we both enjoy, and there is a theme through a lot of the stories about deep nostalgia, and uh, it feels like this week's guest is the ghost of Christmas past. Uh, it was cool to talk to Mick again, and uh, it was cool of her to do the podcast. It's, it's interesting, like, when I found out that she listened to the podcast, it was just fascinating to me that uh, someone from my deep past sort of is reconnected through the podcast. That makes this kind of interesting for me. So we conduct the interview over Skype, so if it sounds like the interview is Skypey, that is why. Uh, as usual, we're going to discuss typical spoilers, and we're going to talk coarse language. At least I'm going to talk coarse language. I've always had a bit of a potty mouth. Um, so I hope you're in for an interesting episode of Rank and Review as we dig deep and get nostalgic with Stephen King, Volume 3. Okay, so um, welcome to Mireille Smith, or Mick Smith, or Mick as I, I know her, <laughs> all the way from lovely Edmonton, Alberta. Um, I gotta ask, before we get into Stephen King, because we are going to get into Stephen King, um, we've barely spoken in like, what, 15 years? We hardly ever spoke. We, we got to see a, a Tragically Hip concert a couple of months ago, but basically... No, not so much, but I heard that you were listening to the podcast, and uh, here we are doing the podcast together, but did Rankin Review bring two old friends back together? Is that, what, is that what's happening here? It might have. It might have. Actually, I've always felt like I was your friend along the way still, because sometimes Charlene uh, clandestinely passes some mixed CDs that she's received and shares them with me. Oh, it's like that, is it? <laughs> It's like that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you've been making me mix tapes even though you didn't know. Oh, well. I'll take that. I'll take that as a compliment. Um, so Stephen King is one of the many things that you and I sort of have in common. Um, 
there's a weird shame thing with Stephen King. A lot of people either, uh, you know, poo-poo the Stephen King, and maybe because he's too popular or because he does horror, but they either don't like Stephen King or they don't want to admit it's Stephen that they like Stephen King. It's like admitting that they've watched pornography or something. They're just like, ew, Stephen King, there's some stink on it for some reason. And I'm wondering how you can be like the most successful author in the world and have this sort of stink on your reputation. <laughs> Yeah, I I couldn't I can't really explain it except maybe to say that a lot of people feel empowered by saying that they don't like what the masses like. Yeah. That could be one of the one of the things. You know, like people will be um will totally love a band, but as soon as everyone else loves the band, eh, you yeah. know, they move on to something else and it's just a uh, Harry Potter things. sucks, Radiohead sucks, blah blah blah, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because if it's too popular, it's not cool enough. Um, well, if if the lowest common denominator likes it, I don't want to align myself with them. Exactly. Maybe that's that's one of the one of the things. Well, um, you got an interesting collection of movies. I think that both ends of the spectrum are kind of represented quality-wise. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's all. I think it's an interesting representation of his writing, like in that. Um, this is only about 50% horror, I would say. Although, mm -hmm. I mean, some people say there's no horror to Shawshank Redemption. I think the idea of being sentenced to life in prison for a crime you didn't do is in a way a psychological horror film. <laughs> but, um, Absolutely, absolutely. But here we have examples like the Hearts in Atlantis, like Stand By Me, which is based off the body, that um, there's no ghosts here. There's no, like, necessarily horrifying deaths or grim events to sort of keep you turning the pages. This is sort of straight narrative dramatic fiction from the master of horror. Um, and as a reader, do you prefer your scary king? Do you prefer your serious king? Do you have a, do you have a sort of dog in that fight? I don't really have a preference, actually. Um, I swing both ways. One of my favorite ones is uh, Through the Eyes of, of the Dragon. Right. And uh, that one doesn't have much horror to it. Um, kind of, I guess, gets us more into the Dark Tower world. Yeah, it sort of always um, felt like a test run for some of the Dark Tower stuff to me. Maybe yeah. I don't mean to be dismissive um, about it, but yeah. Same with the, the Talisman and uh, yeah, Eyes of the Dragon. Yeah. We're going to have to get but a I little... I like the horror, too. Yeah. I mean, it's... We're going to have to get a little bit into the Dark Tower, because I think what that Dark Tower is for me is the threading of those two things, right? The dramatic sort of storytelling and the horror storytelling sort of gets pushed into this one story. And if you do dig in and get into the Dark Tower universe, basically every book of Stephen King, in some way, tangentially, is involved in the Dark Tower. And I think mm -hmm. having that, as coming in as fans as we are, I think we have that extra appreciation for it, which makes it easier for us to like. And makes it easier for us to put up with things that, I mean, I do think that there, I, I, I'm a fan of Stephen King, but I, I mean, I can be critical. <laughs> I can say translating Stephen King to the film to a screen can be difficult because of the dialogue that he writes. Sometimes you can make it work on the page, but sometimes if you literally transcribe it, <laughs> it it's hard. It's hard. Uh, I mean, Stephen King famously didn't like this version of The Shining that we're going to talk about. He did his own version that was much truer to the book, and that was it not, was terrible. It was not scary at all. It was very faithful, like to the text, so much that 
I didn't just feel sorry for Steven Weber having to step into the shoes of Jack Nicholson. I felt sorry for him for having to choke down some of these lines, right? Mm-hmm. Stephen King is not perfect, but he's got an amazing imagination. And pass or fail, I think that's what I want to get into when we're talking about these movies. Um, is there anything you wanted to say by way of introduction? And thank you so much for doing this, Mick. <laughs> this is going to be like My the pleasure. longest conversation we've had in over a decade. <laughs> Um, No, I've been reading Stephen King since probably my early teens, and um, I agree. There are, I have my complaints also, um, but I think his stories are always interesting. My biggest complaint is usually that most of them can be cut down by several hundred pages (laughs) sometimes, Um, but they're, they're always interesting, and I'm always you know, going to read the next one. Right. And also he's, um, some of my favorite novelists. I just wish that they would write sh- short stories to see yeah. what they would be like. And Stephen King writes a ton of short stories. And I love that because I, I love reading short stories too. So that was good. sort of one of my first things getting me into Stephen King was reading the collections of short story, specifically, um, night shift and skeleton crew. The first two, I really liked those because I was a slow reader and like <laughs> having a nice story wedged into 30 pages instead of 350 was something that as a <laughs> kid I could get my head around a lot better. And uh, as, yeah. as, as a result, I am familiar with the source material on The Mangler and I am familiar with the source material on Grandma. So I think I will get into that a little bit. But I think unless there's anything else, I'm just going to list the movies off and we can start this thing. How are you Sounds feeling? But how's it going for you so far? I'm comfortable. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, the six Stephen King adaptations that we're going to talk about. We just did a Stephen King adaptation just a few episodes ago. It's like all of a sudden Stephen King is in vogue. It's in the, it's in the air for some reason. We're going to talk about. Well, it was his birthday a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah. So. And who knows? I mean, people could be listening to this in the future. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> he might not even be alive. Ooh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, we're going to talk about. Mercy, which is an adaptation of a short story called Grandma from Skeleton Crew. Then we're going to talk about Frank Darabont's adaptation of Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. Then we're going to talk about The Mangler from Toby Hooper. We're going to talk about The Shining from obscure filmmaker Stanley Kubrick. This was recently featured in my Best of the 80s. So if you're trying to guess where my rank going to be, that one's probably going to rank somewhere in the top half, we were hoping, right? <laughs> Um, we have Hearts in Atlantis, starring the famously somewhat difficult Anthony Hopkins, and we'll finish it off with not The Stand, but with Stand By Me, uh, which is an adaptation of uh, The Body, which is in the same collection that you'll find Shawshank Redemption, actually, I believe, different seasons. Correct. Which is one of my Stephen King hardcovers that just vanished one day. Poof. Oh. It just disappeared. Hmm. Sad. Just a moment of silence for that. Your grandma, she's in pretty bad shape. The nursing home won't take care of her. She's gonna need us close, okay? What's this? That's a conjuring book. It's used for black magic. Folks say that it opens a doorway to 
something dark and evil. Grim? So as I said in the introduction, Mercy is an adaptation of a short story called Grandma. And uh, I have an interesting relationship with it because I watched the 80s version of The Twilight Zone a lot when I was a kid on TV. And they did an adaptation of this story. Uh, the kid who starred in The NeverEnding Story as Bastion played George in, really? in, in a 22-minute adaptation of this story. And I found it absolutely terrifying, so much so that I sought out the book that it was in, Skeleton Key, and I read the whole thing. This was one of my entry points into the King world. Oh, well, it's good to know that there's a good version of this story out there. Yeah, well, and that's sort of where I was going to start with this, is that this uh, movie was produced by Bloomhouse Productions. They do all sorts of horror movie franchises, insidious paranormal activity, a lot of high-profile things. And it was just really quietly released on demand and on video with no fanfare after almost two years after it was finished production. And one gets the feeling when watching the movie that this is a film that someone's taken the knives to. And that even though they've taken Savage Knives to it, it's, a, it's under 80 minutes. It's a very short movie. I can't help but feel like this movie or this story is better served in a short form. If it was part of an anthology of Stephen King stories or an anthology of just scary stories, it by itself could maybe stand. But everything that they add to the story is unnecessary baggage to me. And all the things that they subtract from the story makes it less frightening to me. So in the end, I find Mercy kind of a frustrating experience. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear a second opinion. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Um... One of the things that makes this story uh, creepy and scary is that the kid, George, is so terrified of his grandma and he has to stay alone in the house with her. Yeah. And what do they do in the movie? They make George and the grandma best friends from the beginning. And I think what they intended was for their relationship, the sort of, downfall of their relationship to be to make it more effective but it did the opposite of that it just uh that didn't work at all it and, uh, it undoes the purpose of the story which i think was just to be a scary story and to play that theme that you talk about where um I, I love my grandparents. I didn't have any fear of them necessarily. But I think that there's an interesting relationship that happens between, a, you know, a grandparent and their, their grandchild. And that they're both at different ends of their spectrum of life in the story. And there's something scary looking at your grandparents in that in best case scenario, you're kind of looking at your future. And I can totally relate to that. I spent a lot of time as a kid in, in the care of my grandparents and hanging out with frontiersmen, a lot of old, you know, retired veterans. And uh, I remember I, I used to love to change the bandages on my grandpa's foot. <laughs> For a long time, I wanted to be a doctor until I realized I just wanted to be my grandpa's doctor. Uh, I couldn't Aww. really be bothered to <laughs> help sweet. anybody else. But uh, if I could be my grandfather's doctor, I would be all about that. But after watching that Twilight Zone episode, all of a sudden that, that gauze and the smell of the, the medical stuff in that room and the, all, all the old books on the shelves, it, it got a new context. I wasn't scared of my grandpa, but all of a sudden that seed was planted, you know? 
how could I know if my grandpa was a warlock or if my grandma was a witch? They wouldn't tell me. (laughs) 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 But none of this is explored in the movie. And worse than that, like you said, they did the opposite of the story. It becomes a love story between a grandmother and a grandson instead of very much the opposite, which is the in the story, spoilers, <laughs> this little kid gets possessed by his grandmother. She dies, but she basically enters into him. And, uh, you know, you get the feeling at the end of the story that she's going to be up to some bad business through him. You know, yay! Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's not really what happens here. <laughs> Why do the story if you're not going to do the story? I had the same conversation when we were talking about uh, Children of the Corn. Where in order to make it into a feature length, they changed the story so much that it was no longer Children of the Corn, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the way they um, they managed to purge the the evil or whatever is just done in such a... I mean, it's done so easily. All he does is cry onto the weeping book. Mm-hmm. Ta-da! Done. <laughs> you know, it was just lame, and then it's a happy ending, and then they bury the evil book. Oh, but let's dig a hole, but let's only make it six inches deep. Yeah. I mean, if you have an evil book that's going to, uh, you know, come back to ruin someone else's life, maybe dig a deeper fucking hole. Yeah. And in a little kid logic, if they were younger kids anyway, I might even have let that slide because for little kids, once it's under the ground, it's gone forever and ever. Amen, right? <laughs> no, they're old enough to dig a deeper hole. But there was just basic plot elements that upon second viewing are still unclear to me. Dylan McDermott, the friend of the family guy, like I'm not sure what he's doing in the movie at all. Um, the uh, uncle that that's Mark Duplass plays is kind of the drunk and uh, who knows something's up with his mom. You get the feeling that he's got a little bit scared of her, but I don't know what his scenes add. I don't know what it does to push atmosphere, story, or, or you know, scares. I... Uh, the imaginary friend angle, which comes in very late in the game, is this like weird deus ex machina, which doesn't make sense. He's told to go get an axe, but then he doesn't, and he doesn't use the axe. <laughs> but he's reaching for the axe. But That's sort of this... suspenseful, almost. <laughs> Just like, that feels like a series of unfinished sentences, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is. Although, uh, I'll say one good thing. Go ahead. Right at the beginning, uh, I found, because at the beginning it starts uh, in the past in 1967 with the parents, and you see the, um, you know, grandma's husband. Take himself out with an uh, axe. Take himself, yeah, he axes himself in the face with an axe. And that's kind of a disturbing image to me. (laughs) But it seemed to promise something much deeper and darker to come, right? Mm -hmm. It is a good opening. It's a good cold open. It's a good, like, oh, shit. This movie's going to be hard, man, but it really isn't. It's kind of sweet in the way. Uh, Chandler Riggs plays George. Are you a fan of The Walking Dead? Yeah, I recognized him from that. Yeah, I hadn't seen him in anything else besides yeah. The Walking Dead. He's, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm hot and cold, but I try not to be too hard on child actors because I think you're asking a lot of them. Um I think he's adequate, but Bastion from NeverEnding Story, just for the record, did a better job. And if you look up uh, Grandma Twilight Zone on YouTube, I believe you can watch the episode. It's not as scary now as it was in 1985 or whenever it was when I watched it for the first time. But I would say watch that three times before you watch Mercy. 
Am I being mean? Do you think, are we being hard on this movie? <laughs> no, I don't think so. It's, it's just not that good. I mean, it's not very good at all. And um, as you said, it strayed to, it tried to stretch the story in ways that just didn't work. And yeah, the acting wasn't that great. The ending was disappointing. I don't think we're being too hard on it. <laughs> well, let me say, let me say some nice oh. things. Oh, go, go, go. Oh, I forgot one thing. Bring and it. of course, the light bulb doesn't work when he's going down to the cellar. No, no, no. Why would it? <laughs> I want to say some nice things about the story itself. Um, in the story, uh, his brother's in the hospital and his mom has to go deal with that. And he's left alone with his grandmother and he's scared to be with her. And as he understands it, she stops breathing. And there's this absolutely terrifying scene where the little boy sort of stems up his courage and just sort of decides that he wants to, when his mom gets home, be able to say that he handled the situation well, that he got over his fears, and that part of doing that would be to do the respectful thing and go into grandma's room and cover her face. And that decision and that choice is his undoing. And I think it's terrifying. <laughs> like, I think it's <laughs> terrifying. Also because that little boy is doing absolutely everything right. And it's going to cost him everything. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, none of that is present in Mercy. Like, just that scene alone, if they had that one scene that, that gave me that feeling of, oh no, don't do it, don't do it. What's ha Like, no, it's not there. No. It's not there. And I really wish it was, because I think it's actually a good story. Uh, and I think, you know, it deserves to, you know, find an audience. And I don't think a lot of people are, are still watching those old 80s Twilight Zone episodes. And I don't <laughs> think this was the one <laughs> to get the job done. They send you here for life. That's exactly what they take. I believe in two things. Discipline. Help me, God! And the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. <laughs> you can fit right in. I must admit, I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. He had a quiet way about him. A walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside that they can't touch. What are you talking about? Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Damn it, dude, friend, you're putting me behind. Hope can drive a man insane. You better be sick or dead in there, I kid you not. You better get used to that idea. Oh, my holy God. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Too busy living. So I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that the Shawshank Redemption is a classic film at this point. I think like it's pretty well acknowledged to be uniformly embraced by critics and loved by anybody who actually you know sits down to watch it. The problem was when it came out, nobody went to see it in the theaters, and I kind of get it. You know, 
Shawshank Redemption is not a particularly memorable title. Slightly better than Rita Hayworth in the Shawshank Redemption, I guess, but still. It's a prison drama, and, you know, it's about a guy who's falsely accused of murdering his wife and is sentenced to life in this prison. Sounds like a good time. Well, it is actually a fantastic time. And to accent how good this movie is, I saw it in a double feature with a movie that was terrible. I saw a double feature of Shawshank Redemption and Legends of the Fall. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, I mean, I was going to like Shawshank Redemption anyway, but after sitting through Legends of the Fall, the reward, <laughs> the payoff... <laughs> of Shawshank was just amazing. I've spoken in the podcast in the past quite thoroughly, actually, about my love for Frank Darabont, and particularly in his work with Stephen King. And when we reviewed The Mist in our first Stephen King episode, I posited that uh, The Mist was basically the shadow version of Shawshank Redemption. With Shawshank Redemption, for all its dark corners, I think is a movie that's intensely hopeful, the mist is kind of the opposite of that. It's like this dire, devastating thing. And the fact that one guy made both of those movies and that they're both in their own way, I think, kind of incredible. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a ridiculous fanboy when it comes to Shawshank Redemption. Uh, for anybody who is out of the know, <laughs> Tim Robbins is and Andy Dufresne is falsely accused of killing his wife and he gets sent to Shawshank Prison where he befriends Red... Uh, a character in the book who is, I believe, a short, red-haired Irish man, and mm -hmm. who in the movie is played by a tall, black, beef-reckled Morgan Freeman. And for any of you people out there who are all bitching about Idris Elba playing the gunslinger, I'd like to remind you of this casting in Shawshank Redemption. And tell, you know, tell that racist part of your mind to shut up. The movies are going to be awesome, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, basically we get that soulful, smooth narration from Morgan Freeman unspooling this yarn. And as Stephen King yarns go, it's one of the really, really good ones. And there's not one element of Supernatural to it. I'm a big fan. Where, where do you land? I am also a big fan. Uh, I think part of the magic of this movie is that... Um, the story is fine. The story is interesting, but this movie just elevates the source material more than any other movie I can even think of, really, because it takes all of the little nuggets that are in the narrative and makes something even better with them. Uh, one example is uh, the character of Brooks. Brooks is man mentioned... Couple Brooks Hatlin is mentioned in the in the story, yeah. um, but it's it's a very small mention. But in the movie, they give him Jake the bird, and they give him this um, the story of explaining to us what it means to be institutionalized. All of that goes through Brooks, and the way they've um, the way they've done it is it's just perfect. Yeah. Um, Even the image of him, sorry. Even sorry, the image of, of Brooks riding on the bus after he gets paroled. Looking like a is terrified just child. Heartbreaking. He looks scared. He looks like a he little kid. He looks so scared. Yeah. Um, and I, I love this aspect of it that you wouldn't suspect in King. King, who writes novels like Pet Cemetery, where an entire family is just obliterated for, for us to, to laugh and cackle about, right? 
but at the same time he has such empathy for the prisoners even and maybe even especially the guilty prisoners you know um it is a story told from a very specific perspective in the book it's red who's telling the story so this is echoed really well but uh the changes that are made in the movie are minimal and i think smart the most controversial would probably be the killing of the kid who I can't remember the name of the character off the top of my head, but he he had came forth with evidence that could prove that Andy Dufresne went to jail under false pretenses that he had a cellmate that had confessed to the crime at some point. And in the, the novel he gets basically bought off. He basically said, You have a pregnant, you know, girlfriend at home and you have a life ahead of you. So you can either do some hard time and tell the truth, or you can shut your mouth and you can go home next week type of offer. And that wouldn't be as dramatically potent, I don't think, in the movie. Although I think it's probably more realistic, quote unquote. Uh, and the other thing is that in the book, it's a series of wardens that we go through. And in, in the movie, we just get Bob Gunton as this sort of figure of, you know, capitalist evil, <laughs> right? How can I monetize these people's suffering? And how can I be as smug and cold about it as possible? <laughs> And uh, yep. again, uh, as a Stephen King fanboy, a lot of the times I find myself sitting here saying, why did they change that? Why did they change that? And with all these changes in Shawshank Redemption, I'm like, well done. Good call. <laughs> yes, we want more Brooks. We need other characters that we can identify beyond Dufresne, because even in the context of the story, he's an outsider. He's weird even within the cast of characters in the prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and considering it has graphic depictions in the book of prison rape and that whole sort of bull lifestyle that, that Dufresne has to suffer for the first few years that he's in there, it's reflected in the movie, but it's not a devastating, horrendous thing to, to put yourself through. A lot of times when you think, you know, hard prison dramas, you think that it's going to just be this crucible. <laughs> and it, it really isn't. There's almost a... I was going to say Disney quality, that's probably pushing it too far, but a Capra quality, like a Frank Capra-esque quality to it. I know that Darabont really likes those sort of old Capra-style movies. Um, there's an Oshucks hopeful quality in, in the movie, even in its darkest moments. And mm -hmm. because the story's being told by these prisoners, um, they're treated very gently. The people that we usually see as hard cases are treated very gently. And the ruling class, the guards and the warden in particular, are portrayed as these demons. But because mm -hmm. the narrator is skewed, I mean, how much of that can we trust? It, there's just nothing not fascinating about watching this movie. I've seen it so many times, and I will watch it again. Same here. Yeah. And <laughs> another... One of the things about the, uh, the, the, the book is, I guess it kind of made me think of when you talk about um, found footage movies and how people are always um, bitching about, oh, why would he be holding the camera? Yeah. Well, this, this story does a lot of, uh, this is why I know this. He keeps explaining over and over again how he got this information. Yeah. And that gets a little bit tiresome, and I'm glad that the movie didn't address that at all. He's just telling the story, and that's it. Yeah. I think that, for me, they were playing the information as currency in, in prison, you know? Uh, it's a big deal to know a secret in a prison or to be in the know. Uh, 
anytime a new group of people arrives, it's big news because the dynamic of the prison is going to change. Because their world is so small, it doesn't take that much to interrupt it. Andy Dufresne is sort of the classic heroic character who shows up to a place, changes it for the better, and then leaves. Right? That's the classic form story, and that's exactly what we see here. Mm-hmm. Uh, a nice bit of behind-the-scenes irony. Um, the sequence where spoilers, and if I'm spoiling Shawshank Redemption for you, good God. When <laughs> Andy Dufresne crawls through this pipe of sewage and drops out into this uh, marsh area, the pipe was completely clean. It was a prop. It was made. That slew that he was dropping himself in, that cleansing baptism that he was to so embrace, was apparently some of the grossest, most fetid water <laughs> that you could ever want to even touch. So next time you watch the movie, as this, you know, the strings are peaking and he's stripping off his wet clothes and, you know, staring to the night sky, embracing <laughs> freedom for the first time, realize that Tim Robbins was probably soaked in cow piss. <laughs> Came out clean on the other side. Right. <laughs> Making movies is magical, you guys. <laughs> um, Shawshank Redemption was nominated for, I think, like something like 11 Academy Awards. Didn't win any of them. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It lost to Forrest Gump, and it was also in competition with Pulp Fiction. Hmm. So the Oscars, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'll, just, I'll just let that lay. <laughs> um, but history has been kind to Shawshank Redemption. It remains to this day a highly saleable item, even with the physical medium dying you will be able to get your hands on a copy of Shawshank Redemption if you want one. People who uh, want to take a nice spiritual angle out of it can. There's that whole bromance thing. I know it's very popular in romantic comedies to sort of embrace that guys can love each other and that's okay. I think this movie was tapping into that way before it was cool, you know? Because I don't know Mm -hmm. what to call the relationship between Red and Dufresne if not kind of a love story. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, they're not lovers, but they love each other, you know? And they build a life together because that's the world that they're in. And when they find their freedom, they choose to stay together because they they love each other, right? Um, yeah. And uh, it, it was, you know, it's just something that people connected to, I think, because they hadn't seen it. It was almost a foreign thing, you know? And, yeah, I will watch anything Frank Darabont does. I remember watching that movie coming out of it and yelling at my friend Natara because she liked the Legends of the Falls. And I was like, what are you talking about? In her defense, she was in high school. Maybe she'd think differently now. But I was just like, really? We just watched... Okay, (laughs) you want to talk about Legends of the Falls? Let's do that. Like, uh... It's up there. I, I mean, I don't want to say this is the greatest movie ever made, but it's if I had to, someone put a gun to my head and said, make a list of your favorite movies, this would definitely probably place on that list. So not to tip my hand too much, Mick, uh, it's going to rank pretty high on this list. Certainly higher than Mercy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the, I, there's really very little negative to say about this movie. I mean... The, the music, the soundtrack is perfect. The the song they're playing in the opening credits when they show Andy in the car drinking, yep. contemplating what he's going to do, that that song is perfect for the situation. The the score when, you know, we're, when we're first shown the prison, 
Perfect. Yeah. The the opera they choose to to play over the loudspeaker. Perfect. I mean, yeah. everything is all that stuff was so well chosen. It's one of these cases. I remember her, it's a weird comparison, but I'll make it. Someone talking about the Ron Howard movie uh, about the Apollo landing that uh, went so disastrously wrong. How do you make a movie where everybody knows the uh, ending and make it suspenseful? Well, I knew the ending to Shawshank Redemption, you know, when I sat down to watch the movie. I knew it. But the revelation and his the, the way that they show us, first, the fact that he has escaped, and then backing up to show us how he has spent years, literally years, escaping from Shawshank, uh, it, the payoffs just kept going coming and coming and coming. And it felt revelatory, even though I'd read the story. And that's when and you know... And watching, yeah. watching the warden... Uh, discover everything is fabulous and I think that that's the dramatic payoff of having the warden just be that one guy so when he is completely undone completely exposed and completely like he has to kill himself really (laughs) like he can't go to Shawshank it's he's not going to jail exactly and uh, it was probably better for him (laughs) to to, to end his life and he knew it but Mm -hmm. You know, it, he only had those few minutes, basically, of his life to see everything unravel. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's so rewarding after this two hours in this dark, dark Shawshank area. Uh, apparently, the script originally ended exactly as the book does, with Red on the bus driving towards, you know, the Mexican border. And mm-hmm. he's just saying, I, I hope that the ocean is as blue as I remember it. I hope. And that's yeah. it. We don't actually definitively show Andy and Red get back together. But for the right. movie, they went the extra mile and showed that. And that's where the power of cinema is really, 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 like, you, arguably you don't need that scene. But because we've been in those gray concrete walls for so long, to actually be in this huge, vast, you know, must have been a crane or helicopter shop over a beach with all those colors and all the blue of the ocean... It was just like, it was such a great dramatic punctuation. And it was, you know, it was exactly mm-hmm. the soft landing that the audience needed. And it was mm-hmm. not what anybody expected out of a prison drama called Shawshank yep. Redemption. Nobody yep. saw this coming. And it's too bad because mm-hmm. I think I would have given it best picture if I had my say. I would have given yeah. it over Pulp Fiction. I certainly would have given it over Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you talk shit about Forrest Gump before, and I think you're too hard on it. But yes, of course, I agree <laughs> that this should win over Forrest Gump. Yes, today is not the day for me to get on my high hunches about <laughs> Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is fine, but, but it's a three-star movie, people. It's a three-star movie. <laughs> Everybody needs to relax about Forrest Gump, okay? <laughs> I, uh, I didn't even actually realize Stephen King wrote Forrest Gump. Did you know? <laughs> I think we've just been gushing about Shawshank. Should we continue to gush or are we done? Well, I want to gush about um, two more things. Do it. Uh, Just, I think one of the marks of a really good movie is just when um, even the the unnecessary or throwaway scenes are brilliant. I mean, we have the scenes when... um, when Andy's building his library and uh, the guys are helping him sort the books and uh, the um, Haywood is 
found the the Count of Monte Cristo and he right. he pronounces it dumbass. Yeah. I mean that kind of stuff. It's not it's not in the book. It's not necessary, but it's it's great. It's great characterization and it's just fantastic. And same thing with the uh, in the book. They mention that everybody in the prison says they're innocent, but the way they represent that in the movie is just fantastic. You know, yeah. it's just. Flip and comment, lawyer, fuck me. Yeah, I mean, exactly. They carry that on later, and it's it's perfect. And it, it, it's an evasion too. It's just a way to not have the conversation again, because that's one of the five conversations that you have when you're in jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, going back to the horrifying realization. I mean, uh, I just turned forty. I can be pretty dark. I'm in a dark place mentally, I guess, sometimes these days. But like, in this because <laughs> long... you're forty, Jesus. What's that? Because I'm 40. In this long, slow march towards the grave, I mean, sooner or later, I'm going to enter a room or a series of rooms, which I know these are going to be the last few rooms that I'm going to see. But if I get put into that room when I'm 30, and I still have 60 years to go, (laughs) that's bad math. But, you know, I I still have a good journey to go. Um, There's genuine horror to that. And I'm not going to say there's no horror to Shawshank, but there's way more hope. So, win. There's a little bit of me in that machine, and a little bit of it in me. There was an accident today. The worst one I've ever seen. Have you considered the possibility that the machine might be haunted? That machine killed your daughter. Well human sacrifices a demon is a kind of electricity sometimes it gets out of control people get hurt okay so we're going to talk about the mangler um i have said some not nice things about toby hooper in the past even though he's responsible for horror classics like poltergeist in quotation marks some people think Spielberg directed Poltergeist, but uh, Toby Hooper has the credit. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. And the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. No one can take those two movies really away from him. He will always have those. But generally speaking, if somebody says, a film by Toby Hooper, <laughs> Larry doesn't necessarily go, ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, it's not the new, it's not the new <laughs> Wes Anderson joint. It's not the new Cobras, okay? It's not, it's not going to be anywhere near that spectrum. But every now and then these movies come out where uh, there's a lot of steam noise starts building about before it even comes out, even when it's in production. But you're like, oh, they got Robert Englund from Nightmare on Elm Street. And uh, they've got um, the Ted Levine, who played Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. And they've got a Stephen King short story. And they've got the director of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is going to be amazing, you guys. This is going to be fucking epic. Get excited. The Mangler, everybody. The Mangler. You said that you'd never heard of The Mangler when I was talking about it in the introduction. And how lucky and blessed your life would have been had that remained the case. (laughs) I would like to, for the second time in Rank and Review history, apologize to my guest for making them watch a movie. Because as much as there are people who I like in this movie... And as much as I don't hate the source material, this movie is awful. Awful. 
Yes, it is. I accept your apology. <laughs> and I made you watch that, and it wasn't me being like passive-aggressive or anything like that, <laughs> and you punishing you for some past sin. No, you have to watch the Mangler, bitch. No, it's not like that. It was just, that was in the list. It came with Shawshank. Well, you know? <laughs> well even before watching it you know something's up when you can't find it in the public library you can't find it uh on demand you can't find it on um itunes you yeah. know something's up <laughs> <laughs> nobody seems to want to watch this movie but me <laughs> <laughs> yes uh this is this is like the collector in me you know kicking my ass like I, I, I at some point decided I had so many of them that I needed to have all of the Stephen King adaptations. Completest nature. I've always been a collector since I was a kid. Be it comic books, be it action figures, be it buttons, be it Smurfs, be it whatever. So I own a physical fucking copy of <laughs> The Mangler. And it sits on my shelf like a fucking, I don't know. It's like I had a picture of Ann Coulter on my wall or something. It just It's a spit in the face of all things decent. <laughs> Does it have any special features? <laughs> Only that I can skip right to the end. <laughs> there is, a, I think, maybe an apology uh, commentary track <laughs> on here somewhere. But, okay, I we haven't talked about the script or the story. Uh, it's from the first collection of short stories, which were his most pulpy and in a lot of ways uh, most straightforward but kind of fun collection. There, the. There's not a lot in those stories that surprise you necessarily. They are classic form short horror fiction, the kind of thing you would see on a Twilight Zone or a Tales from the Dark Side. And they work in that sort of quick superficial way. And I guess I said a similar thing about Grandma, that part of the problem with The Mangler is that this just might not have enough story to warrant a feature film. But that's not the problem. I think that was the major problem facing Mercy. But the major problem facing Mangler is that the script is awful and the performances in it aren't that great. I will, I will defend Ted Levine. He plays the lead character. I think he's trying to do everything he can to salvage some measure of dignity. And it must have been difficult. I mean, coming off of a, a production like Silence of the Lambs just so soon... <laughs> be in a so clearly terrible, terrible horror movie like this. It can't have been a really, you know, inspiring journey. And I think Levine is a good actor, and I think he's trying, but the script doesn't help him, and he is surrounded by not good performers. There are people who will defend Robert Englund, and I think he's fine as Freddy Krueger, but... I think he's fine, he can be menacing enough. The makeup does do a good deal of the work, but I don't think he's untalented. But if this was the only thing I'd ever seen him in, I would have just thought he was like the worst actor I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> His portrayal of this evil satanic owner of the laundry is over the top doesn't say it. Cartoonish doesn't say it. Super villain doesn't say it. There's no way that the people on set could not have known that that was too much. And nobody fucking told Robert Englund, you might want to ease up on the, on the gas a little bit there. I mean, I was honestly getting to the point where I thought, did he think this was an absurd comedy? Is maybe he just looked at the script and thought it was so fucking crazy that it couldn't necessarily be, like, serious? So even though the lines weren't funny, he was just sort of 
taking a, a Flash Gordon approach to the material would just go as big as possible. <laughs> like, no That's one else possible. seemed to be you... doing that, though. Like, the... <laughs> I can't think of it. Another explanation. As I remember, and it's been a while from the story, uh, short story, the laundry gets possessed almost accidentally in that all of these series of ingredients, uh, drops of blood, or this certain type of uh, uh, herb, different ingredients just manage to shuffle their way through the machine in the course of it doing the laundry. And it becomes a possessed machine. And when opportunity to take a victim presents itself, it will kill people. And it eventually becomes so powerful and so fully possessed that it actually wrestles itself off of the steel bearings in the ground and becomes this creature, <laughs> clockwork machine of doom. It's a yes, ridiculous that... it's a ridiculous story, but it works well enough for a fifteen page laugh in, in the collection Night Shift. As yeah. a movie here uh, the words escape me, girl. I don't I... It's well. It's hard to know where to start. I mean, I guess we can start with the uh, uh, fantastically eighty special effects. Even though this movie was made in nineteen ninety five. Yep. So you've got, as you just mentioned, the machine coming to life, and it's just looks terrible. It's not convincing at all. Terrible by I mean, any standard. By any standard. You can say, oh, it's early in the era of CGI and give it a pass. But no, even by early era CGI, it's terrible. <laughs> I also think that we should give special mention to the makeup. Like the old age makeup. Okay, so this is a true story. Yep. You um, started by listing the actors. Yeah. When I watched this movie, I did not know that Freddy Krueger was in it. Right. And when I saw JJJ uh, Picture Man... Yeah. I thought, gee, that's a Freddy Krueger-looking guy, but he's not Freddy Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> Freddy Krueger plays a different character. I mean, it's ridiculous. But there's a couple of characters. Like, they got old-age makeup on England, but this sort of confident that Ted Levine befriends this old guy who's suffering from cancer. Yeah, the picture man. Yeah, he has ridiculously over-the-top makeup. It's like they... The makeup guy was overdoing it. Robert Englund was overdoing it. The computer effects guys were underdoing it. <laughs> so when the when the picture man dies, yes, he uh, of course um, shoots blood out of his mouth, mm. and it completely covers the lens of the camera. I mean, I, I know that I, you know I've seen it before, and you can let it go, but here it's just so. It's just one more thing. That's just <laughs> ridiculous. Why do that? I think that one of my personal least favorite things was the brother-in-law character. The Ugh, sidekick yeah. character, Ted Levine's buddy. He'd lost his wife in an accident and, you know, been hit in the sauce and become a bitter soul. But uh, his old brother-in-law still is his friend anyway. And golly geez, they're going to be best buds forever. They're going to join sides and they're going to fight this evil. And they're going to... They're, they're just... Oh, he's got the most hilarious, like, uh, I don't know, I can't even call it a mullet. It, it looks like a perm. It's like an 80s perm. And again, in the middle of the 90s, like, I guarantee within a few months of the production, that guy would look at dailies and was like, what the fuck was I thinking? Oh, my God, this is part of public record now. 
nobody can walk away with this movie. Like, nobody can walk away with this movie with their head held high. I, I mean, no. Ted Levine tried, but I don't know how much he succeeded. But Well, the unfortunate thing, too, is that the officer, Officer Hutton, in the book, is just a normal guy who's trying to solve this this mystery or this happening and in the movie they turn him into this just grouchy belligerent asshole who yeah. isn't nice to anybody even the people who are trying to help him and even after he oh another awesome scene where he beats up the icebox yeah. <laughs> with the sledgehammer uh he accepts that there's something supernatural going on but he doesn't mention to his brother-in-law oh you know, I guess you're right after all. He yeah. just, you know, carries on being a total asshole and but now he believes in the supernatural. Like it's just it's just awful. Oh, and of course the brother in law is an academic yeah. who specializes in He all majored this in exposition. <laughs> yeah, and he uh <laughs> and he mentions the Belladonna. The Belladonna is uh what ends up being in the easy gel uh, capsules that right. fall in the machine. and But he tells us about 15 times, oh, good thing there isn't Belladonna. Good yeah. thing there's no Belladonna, because then we'd really be in trouble. But we don't have to worry about Belladonna, so thank yeah. goodness for that. <laughs> like, <laughs> Make sure nobody <laughs> thinks that uh, that could possibly turn up later in the plot in any way. But again, <laughs> as you already mentioned, Nick, like... Uh, if you're writing, if you're writing a screenplay and one of your characters is a cop who's bitter about the world, drinks too much, recently lost his wife, and bitches to everybody, <laughs> I mean, you really need to start again. We have fucking been here before, a lot. And uh, if you want to take on a story as crazy as the Mangler, crazy and over the top might be the way to approach it. But uh, I don't know what this movie was. I couldn't even say tonally what they were going for. Because it's not no. this sort of wacky Sam Raimi kind of over-the-top thing. It's no. not super atmospheric. Is that it sort of lets the uh, ambience work your nerves. It doesn't have necessarily too many boo scares. I feel like they want us to take it seriously, but it's so ludicrous that I don't know how anybody could. Like... It's one of those things where I don't even know what they were fucking going for. No, because a lot of the plot elements that they had to add, because it is only like a, I don't know, what, a 20-page story or whatever. So they created a plot line um, where the the big boss has nieces, in quotation marks, yes. who end up being, you know... Uh, Sacrificial lambs. Yes, sacrificial lambs. Thank you. But the hitch is that they, it's always on their 16th birthday. So, okay, so this, uh, the main girl, Sherry, first we're told that she's fresh out of high school. Then we're told that it's her 16th birthday so that she can be a sacrifice to the machine. And then at the end, Ted Levine, who's what, a, like a 40 year old police officer, shows up at the laundry with flowers because what? He's going to want to date her like <laughs> ew what I the mean... fuck it's just terrible <laughs> how does that make any sense at all and how many teenagers are working in this i mean okay it's not it's not that unusual for teenagers to have jobs but like they work at mcdonald's or in bookstores not at industrial laundries like yeah the whole thing just is ridiculous 
They should have just had girls that they kidnapped and threw in the machine then. And I wish I could say it was so bad it's good, because it sounds like it could almost be because of how ludicrous it is. And uh, a a lot of the times when you have a bunch of supporting characters who are hilariously inadequate, I do kind of find it amusing. After a while, I stop feeling embarrassed for the performance and just start really going with it because it just (laughs) becomes hilarious. I don't get that here. I mean... There's a couple of moments where there's okay physical special effects, memorably when uh, uh, Robert Englund gets folded into the machine. It, it looks pretty brutal, but there's so little to recommend. Usually, I, like, I have a mantra up on the Rank and Review website, like, I, I try not to just be about hate. I try not to, you know, this movie sucks, everything's stupid. If you watch this movie or you like this movie, you're stupid. Like, I've heard those podcasts and I don't find them interesting to listen to. But every now and then a movie like this comes along that really challenges me. <laughs> every now and then a, a movie will personally rub me the wrong way. I don't know if you listened to my review of Dreamcatcher or the Roland, I did, yes. <laughs> or the Roland Emmerich version of Godzilla where I'll get a little bit up in arms. But like... Here, I was just, I, like, I, I kept on thinking, like, what's something nice I can say about the Mangler? <laughs> and I got nothing. Well, I can think of one so bad it's good moment. All right. <laughs> There's, uh, okay, so the officer breaks into the laundry to try to figure shit out, I guess. And he approaches the machine, and the machine turns on, and he gets his jacket tail caught in the machine. So, instead of taking his arms out of the jacket so that he can get away, he takes out his handgun and and shoots shoots his jacket about ten times so that it'll shred enough to get away from the machine. When it comes to supernatural, like, when it comes to supernaturally possessed laundries, Shoot first, ask questions later. <laughs> that is the lesson to take away from the movie. But he wasn't shooting the machine, he was shooting his own jacket. <laughs> he buys high quality. I mean. <laughs> okay, well, I think that's enough said on the mangler from my end. Is there anything else you wanted to say? Just one last thing. Um, when in the Shawshank Redemption story, in the scene where um, Andy gets accosted, in the laundry, they mentioned that the machine is called the Mangler. Yeah. I just thought that was funny. I never would have noticed that if I hadn't, uh, you know, read these so close together. <laughs> Fun fact, you guys. <laughs> that yeah. might be the most interesting thing we've said about the Mangler. <laughs> <laughs> it might be the same machine. <laughs> Isolation can, of itself, become a problem. Oh. They killed you and Danny. You did this to me. Didn't you? How could you? How could you? Here's Johnny. So, I mean... For me, the jury is long out on The Shining. I think that it's an absolutely terrifying movie. I think the atmosphere in it is hard to compete with anything else. But as I said when I talked about it when we did our Greatest Horror Movies of the 80s episodes, as much as I think it's a masterful horror movie, it's a not great adaptation 
of the source material. A lot of the book got lost in the making of The Shining. Now, I'm still sitting here saying that this movie is terrifying. If you like scary movies, you need to see it. It's a truly epic horror movie. Kubrick deserves the reputation that he has. But when we're talking about adaptations of Stephen King, I mean, I will take this, this, this slant on the review. I'm going to be a little bit more on side with Stephen King. Uh, Stephen King said that he didn't like this movie because, I mean, they didn't tell the story, right? Part of it is at the time when they were making this movie in 1980, uh, the idea of making hedge animals that could move about and cavort in front of this hotel in any kind of way that would look credible would be an epic undertaking, even for the world's greatest living filmmaker. But more to the point, I think it was just that Stanley Kubrick was almost solely interested in the psychological and almost not at all in the supernatural and um i i think that if you lose the supernatural from the shining you're taking a big bite out of the book so i'm going to defend stephen king's position that it's not a good adaptation while still saying it's one of the greatest horror movies ever made so it's a tough one to land on as a stephen king fan but uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on <laughs> I agree with um, everything you just said. However, it's still very difficult to stay on Stephen King's side when the version he ended up getting made was so not good. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, it would be great to have a really good faithful adaptation of the book. I totally support someone giving it another shot, but but it hasn't happened. And I'm totally, f I'm in the case of The Shining, I'm totally fine with uh, the movie being as different as it is. Yeah. I'm, it took, it took the skeleton and, and uh, made something I think great with it. So I'm fine with that. I, you know, I mean the, I enjoyed the Shining, the book, but it didn't, the adaptation didn't make me angry right. at all. Yeah, it's a hard thing to put your finger on. I mean, I definitely got the feeling when I watched it this time, because <laughs> it's a very watchable movie, uh, that Kubrick definitely had read the book. I think that in a way, he... Stephen King wasn't too deep in his Dark Tower universe when he made The Shining, but maybe he was deeper into it by the 80s when it was being made. But letting everything else be in the periphery, people who read the novel would understand, for instance, when Shelley Duvall sees the furry, the guy dressed in the bear costume going down on the nice, handsome gentleman in the hotel room. Mm -hmm. There's context to that. There was mm -hmm. the, the, the old owner of the hotel who, you know, belittled and mistreated this one individual horribly and made him do these sort of acts. It's not set up. It's not explained. The, none of that history of the hotel is even winked at in the movie. But we see that shot. And that mm -hmm. shot by itself, because it's so inexplicable, is kind of terrifying. Mm -hmm. You and don't there need are, the context uh, for there... it to be terrifying, right? Yeah. Um other little nuggets too like when you see jack in one scene at his typewriter he's got a scrapbook open there on the table they don't mention it they don't 
particularly focus on it. But if you just read the book, you know that that's the one he found in the basement and that's been, you know, driving his uh, sort of descent into madness. Yeah. What I think so, I missed the most out of the book, out of the book, is the the slow descent. I think that a case can be made that Jack Nicholson, as badass as he is, is crazy from the second he arrives at the Overlook Hotel, and in the uh, well, probably crazy before he arrives. It just gets worse when he when he gets there. In the book, he has an encounter with a wasp's nest, right? He stings his hand oh. and he does a bug bomb to kill all the wasps in the nest and he hangs the nest in his son's room and then somehow the wasp nest comes back to life and his son and he get stung again and it's like this first insult that sort of starts this domino effect that you mm -hmm. know gets him more on edge gets him feeling like there's some power working against him gets him really wanting to have that alcohol back that was taken away from him uh, yeah, and that would have been a really cool visual too now that you mention it because he goes and gets a bowl and puts it over the wasp nest and puts his son to bed in the other room yeah. and then when he comes back to get rid of it, the bowl is full of wasps when yeah. he thought there had only been one or two left was, in the nest. It was so full. that I, it would have been cool to, to see and that, I guess. That was not something that would be impossible to achieve and it was like one of the stepping stones in the madness. That progression isn't there in the movie and I understand why people get mad that it's gone. But it's replaced by things that are absolutely terrifying. Um, going into the King nerddom, again, I did recently review The, the, the Shining. There's a sequel, uh, Dr. Sleep. And it's reliant on the events happening as depicted in the novel. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to make an adaptation of Dr. Sleep, you were almost default forced to remake The Shining. Unless we're all to swallow the TV miniseries, which I don't think is a fair thing to ask of anybody who's a fan of the book. <laughs> it, That's it, true. It, it's it's weird that, uh, I mean, I think that a lot of people culturally like the idea of exploring more of Stephen King universe. I think we're about to hit another windfall in sort of Stephen King popularity. There's mm -hmm. uh, talk of a, a movie about the history of the Overlook Hotel that is just about the Overlook, not about Jack Torrance. And well, since they did do a sequel for a novel and Stephen King is popular, they're probably going to want to make that. So someone is going to be put in the uh, un unenviable position of remaking a Stanley Kubrick movie. <laughs> well, I mean, why not? They can, um, you know, all of these uh, book series now are two, three, four movies, so they can just you know, release them in sequence as sort of a, you know, as a collection. Yeah. The three in a row. I don't think that, I don't know, if it was, if it was together with the history and Dr. Sleep, I don't think it would be measured against the Stanley Kubrick version as much. It's, maybe. I think what it comes down to is that The Shining film is a Stanley Kubrick film not a Stephen King story. I think yes. that these two names are so big that one just had to crowd the other out. And in this case, Kubrick crowded out Stephen King. But I, again, we just keep falling back on it's hard to argue with the results. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and some of the imagery they did pull off for the day is, is, is amazing. I, uh, <laughs> the blood pouring out of the elevators is just something that's been burned into my brain ever since <laughs> I was a kid. I can just, I can close my eyes and see that. 
Um, the, oh, the Grady twins? Oh, the, the twins in the hallway is just a classic. And again, we don't know the whole backstory of that. If you read the novel, we get into it. We get to know Grady a little bit. We Well, I guess we do meet him briefly in the, in the film, but we get into the twins a little bit more. All we get there is just a few scenes of, come play with us, Danny. <laughs> Which will never not be scary. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. I talked about in the other review too, Kubrick's tendency to be brutal and difficult, particularly with Shelley Duvall in this movie. He felt the need to be just psychologically cruel and shitty to her. And, uh, you know, his other, his passion for doing like 60 to 90 takes for even small scenes or insert shots. Again, it's hard to argue with the results, but uh, I, I've sort of posited that I don't find that, I don't respect that way of working particularly. <laughs> Do you have uh, any way to weigh in on that? Uh, I I hadn't heard that before, before I heard you say it, so I, I don't know anything about that, but... But yeah, I agree with what you said before that if he had just asked her for what he wanted, then she probably would have been able to deliver, you know, I mean, and well, it's, yeah, why it's, would you just trust? it's really unfortunate. And, and I know that, um, I mean, I think Shelley Duvall was effective and I, I believe her, but I just, in a lot of her scenes, I just, I don't even like watching her because her, even though she's she finds a way to triumph she just looks so weak and like such a victim yeah. while she's doing it and, <laughs> and i mean i guess that's that's succeeding but uh, it's just so i almost can't antithesis. watch it you know like when she's going up the stairs backwards and waving the bat yeah. and it seems like almost the the scene goes on a little bit too long and i yeah it makes me cringe a little bit it's the antithesis but, of the character in the book, too, by the way. She's very mm -hmm. strong and capable, and she defends herself well in the book. She's not frazzled and, and, and you know, on her heels the whole time. It's not how it's depicted. Yeah. And I don't know why Stanley Kubrick would just trust Jack Nicholson to be able to, you know, play crazy. He didn't feel the need to make Jack Nicholson crazy. He just hired the right actor and trusted he could do the <laughs> job. He just made mm -hmm. it his personal mission to be this fucking asshole to Shelley Duvall. And I... I respect the filmmaker, but I don't respect the man. I don't think you need... I don't think just anything is allowed in the interest of making great art, you know? No. I don't think you really need to cut someone's hand. I don't think you really need to, you know, be psychologically abusive to get them to that place. I think no. if, if no, you have to go not. to that place, you have hired the wrong actor. And I've seen Shelley Duvall and enough other things to know that she's not terrible. So, like... Mm. This movie won Razzies when it came out. It's It was one of the few movies uh, Kubrick made that critically wasn't instantly well-received. It was something that sort of people came to. Um, I think it's a great horror movie and a bad adaptation. And I think its ranking in my list will reflect that. But if you haven't seen The Shining for some reason, you definitely should. Even people who don't like horror movies should watch this because it's just a great film. <laughs> Is there, uh, is there anything more you want to say about The Shining? I, I, I've, I've sort of felt like I've said my piece on it before, but I would love to mm -hmm. hear. There's a lot to get into. No, I just feel like it would be, I don't know, everything feels like a repetition of what somebody else has said, right? right. And when it comes to The Shining, so many people have, have uh, talked about it. But I, one of the reasons I think it's um, so fun to watch is that... <laughs> 
you just um, some of the scenes are so memorable. Like uh, the the scenes when Jack Nicholson is talking to Lloyd in the bar yeah. and talking to Grady in the bathroom. Those scenes are just so memorable, and the way the dialogue is delivered, you know, it's they're they're great and you get to search for all the little nuggets i don't know if you've seen the documentary room 237 i mean there's a million conspiracy theories about what the shining really means and all the levels and and even though you know i don't really believe in any of that it's still fun to watch and try to find you know all of those little uh, oh, two, three, seven adds up to forty-two. So this movie is about the Holocaust. Or <laughs> oh, this uh, I forget. Oh, he's wearing a Danny's wearing an Apollo sweater. So Kubrick uh, filmed the moon landing and yeah. all this other, you know, just ridiculous yeah. stuff. But it's still it's still fun to watch. And when you've seen the movie, you know, five, six times to start looking for these other things. <laughs> but I think that for me, it basically says you can obsess over anything. Some people <laughs> obsess over, you know. I don't know, 9-11 conspiracies. Some people obsess over knitting. Some mm-hmm. people obsess over The Shining. Yeah. But everybody's got an itch somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we didn't even we didn't even do a plot outline on The Shining. Oh. I, it's just one of these <laughs> horror movies that is so famous, it's hard to really say anything more about. It's like when I review Jaws or The Exorcist. It's just like, it's an amazing horror movie, just watch it. You know, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. is an amazing horror movie. Just watch it. But also read the book because they're two very different things. Might have a job for you, kiddo. I want you to keep your eyes open. For what? Fellows who are dangerous. So what do they look like? Well, they wear dark clothes, dark hats. They're kind of faceless. What they want is me back under their control. Don't worry. I won't let the boogeyman get you. They're coming closer. Just listen to my voice. I don't want you to go. Tell me what you see. Sometimes when you're young, you have moments of such happiness, you think you're in some place magical, like Atlantis must have been. So uh, coming into the last couple of reviews, we got two nostalgia specials. Since this has been the <laughs> nostalgia time for Larry the last couple of months, between going to that uh, Tragically Hip concert, uh, seeing a bunch of people I hadn't seen in a whole bunch of years and turning 40, I, I, I've really sort of been eaten into this <laughs> sort of the melancholy of uh, my lost youth. You know, when you left Saskatoon, I think I was 24. No, that can't be right. It was 2001. How old were you in 2001? It was only 15 years ago. You weren't 24, 15 years ago, were you? I'm 40 now. (laughs) Still, even though the math adds up, it doesn't make sense. (laughs) Isn't that fucked up, though? Am I wrong? That's fucked up. I mean, uh, we'll get around to reviewing this movie, but let's just just for a second be terrified by the... Like, it's terrifying the way time just slips by you. Like, like that was so long ago. That's so appallingly long ago now. It doesn't seem like it, but that's ridiculous. But It is. This feeling of nostalgia is a lot of what 
King is banking on in this story. It's actually the first story in the series of novellas that make up the book Hearts in Atlantis. Called uh, the, This novella is called Low Men in Yellow Coats. The rest of the novel, I don't think, really has much to play in on this. Um, and if you are a person who is plugged into the Dark Tower universe, then you understand who this Ted Brodigan character is and how he works into the world of the Breakers and how, in a different plane of existence, he is a person who is enslaved and tormented. Happily, he gets a nice little vacation. <laughs> and he gets to have a nice summer in 1960s Americana. And he gets to befriend a little boy. We don't really understand the full gamut of the, the world going on around him. All we see is this nice old man that rents a room from Hope Davis and her, her son, played by a baby, Anton Yelchin. And uh, the kid is like so many King protagonists, a kid who needs a father figure. <laughs> Much like Stephen King was a kid who needed a father figure and didn't have one. And he sort of finds one in Ted. He finds a friend that introduces him to the world of, you know, literature and magic and, you know, helps him grow up and uh, sort of take personal responsibilities. And it's kind of got this nice aw shucks quality to it, uh, both in the book and especially in the movie. Uh, the guy who directed it, I'm going to read it here, Scott Hicks was hot off of Shine, the movie that won Jeffrey Rush's Oscar. So uh, he was being able to write his own ticket, and uh, at the time, you know, producing a high-profile Stephen King movie, especially with Anthony Hopkins, who was still, you know, running hot off of the steam from Silence of the Lambs, seemed like a guaranteed win. In the end, this is one of those Stephen King adaptations that came and went and didn't really make any ripples in the water one way or the other. And I think that might be sort of where it belongs. <laughs> I don't think it's terrible. I certainly don't think it's amazing. But uh, it just wants to be a kind of pleasant Sunday afternoon viewing. And uh, it's got an aw shucks quality that makes it hard to hate, but makes it kind of forgettable at the same time. <laughs> I... I Knowing the full story, knowing that this is basically a vacation that happens in the life of this Ted character, as it's just this one little aside, it seems like an impossibly tiny piece of narrative from a much vaster story. And fans of Stephen King might just feel it so perfunctory as like a why bother? Why is this a story that demands being told out of the vast different stories in the Stephen King universe? But if you don't come into that without that baggage, I wonder if you would see it differently. Uh, but since I can't change who I am, <laughs> this is me saying, Hearts in Atlantis is okay. Yeah, um, I wouldn't, I mean, it's not terrible, but I wouldn't go so far as okay, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what you just said, I'm almost repeating, but um, I wanted to echo the comment of one of your previous guests, Matt Risling, who said of... Um, uh, sometimes they come back. He's had a million things adapted, but he's also had a million things not adapted. So why would you pick this one? Yeah. And that's how I feel about this story. I really don't feel as though anything about it stood out um, in reading it. Nothing made me think, oh, I wish this was a movie. Yeah. I mean, it just... And the references to the Dark Tower universe... 
I didn't remember Ted in particular. Right. Um, I mean, we're told explicitly that he's a breaker and that, you know, uh, you know, he gives us lines like um, everything serves the beam or I'm on the path of the beam, you know, yeah. all those those things. So, I mean, we're told those things, but nothing else. I mean, well, the low men come and are threatening, but it that thread is just dropped and within the context of this story it's not important at all and the low men aren't threatening and what we end up with is basically um you know it has all the elements of stand by me it's got you know your your grown-up narrator um looking back on his time when you know with uh, the best friends you ever had and a moment that changed his life and facing up to bullies and everything except you know no payoff it just I didn't find it particularly interesting and and yeah I mean it wasn't it wasn't awful but I didn't find it interesting right well I think what might have helped it is if they they didn't have to embrace the dark tower I get that that's too big an egg to crack and that there's way too much going on peripherally to even start going into but if we started to imply that these low men were really bad news, that they weren't just mean government officials, they weren't going to, you know, put them in a, in a cell or, you know, even beat them up or put them under a hot lamp, lamp and try and get information from him. Like, if we got hints that there was something supernaturally evil about them, I think that the stakes would have gone up more. So that when that betrayal happens, when his mother drops a dime on Ted... We hate her more for it, and we are more scared for Ted because, you know, the uncertainty of his fate. And the movie gives us that. When he drives out of the movie, if you don't know the Dark Tower universe, then that's the last you see of Ted. You don't know. You don't know what his fate is. And we find out that this the, our, our main character never finds out who he is, or where, where he ended up either. He's just gone from his life. But he was a guy, much like I was talking about Andy, who showed up in his life, changed things, and then left right? It's just mm. that sort of typical sort of heroic position is, is taken from Ted. But it's interesting that his heroic gestures are things like teaching him, you know, how to be smooth around a girl that he likes or how to stand up to a bully, you know, as opposed to any real sort of personal journey for that character. Basically, Ted is trying to enjoy the summer as best as he can, because I think he knows that sooner or later he's going to get caught. And that's what he's going for. He's enjoying his time with this little boy. He's trying to make it a great summer for both of them because he's got a hellscape that he's going to be returning to. But without having that context, the movie loses a little bit of edge. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that the movie might have failed the mother character. Hope Davis, I think, is a really good actress. But I felt more sympathy towards her in the novella than I did in the movie. In the movie, I kind of hated her guts for some reason. I don't know. Like, a lot of the same notes are hit, you know. She's definitely, you know, being ill-treated by her sexist co-workers. And when she is offered a, something that things, seems like a good job opportunity, basically turns out to be she's brought along as party favor on a business trip. And that makes her further frustrated and uh, resentful of her son and of men in general and less trusting and... I felt it more in the book. I, I felt for her making the bad call and then knowing that she made that bad call and then desperately wanting to make it up to her son. That all 
that all hit more emotionally in the book than in the movie. Although I think it's there in the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree with that completely. And I, I think part of that has to do with um, in her relationship with her son, the way they represented the son in the movie, they, again, they they change elements of a character that shouldn't be changed. So they make him more of a typical kid, I guess. So uh, in the book, there's a scene where, of course, he wants a bike, but he, he his mother can't afford a bike. He has to save up for a bike. But she gives him a grown-up library card. And in the book, he... He's, you know, of course he would have rather had the bike, but he's actually really excited about getting this library card because now he gets to read the grown-up things. And, That's right. you know, it's we, we, we see that as a, you know, it's more of a bonding thing. And so, uh, you know, the mother's done a good thing. But in the movie, they just show it like, oh, what a lame gift. And, yeah. and it ends up being Ted saying, oh, well, maybe, you know, might be might end up being a good thing. So they kind of cheapen the, the relationship in, by doing little things like that. I also think it would be a mistake to not mention Anton Yelchin. Of course, this will be the first of two movies about nostalgically looking back in your past, but one of the main characters is played by uh, an actor who tragically died way younger than they should have. Uh, Yelchin somehow managed to get run over by his own vehicle. (laughs) Uh, Yep. And uh, it's like he's just a little boy in this movie, and he's got all these scenes with Anthony Hopkins, and he's asked to emote, and he's asked to do some pretty tricky navigating. And I don't have to sort of give him a pass as a child actor. I think it was a legitimately strong performance, and uh, it's (laughs) genuinely sad what happened to him. And uh, I think that sort of adds an extra layer of melancholy to a movie that is deliberately or, you know, you know, deals in melancholy. <laughs> so obviously not deliberately, but it's there. It's definitely there. Uh, did you spot Wash? Wash? You're not a Firefly fan, are you? No, I oh. have never watched it. Oh, that's okay. It's on the list. It's going to be will okay. one day. It's okay. Maybe, maybe See, 15 years from now we can talk again, talk about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a little bit hurt that you haven't seen Serenity or Firefly. I do think that it's something you would enjoy, but, you know, it's probably better if we just don't talk about it. The important thing is... <laughs> Alan, I'm sorry I've let you down. Alan Tudyk, uh, who played this character named Wash, who you will enjoy when and if you decide to watch <laughs> the awesome show that was Firefly. Um, he plays a card dealer uh, in a fairgrounds that... Uh, plays an important scene. It actually reminds me very much of a scene in The Dead Zone where he takes, Johnny Smith takes his girlfriend to the fair and they play, they spin the wheel of fate. There's a lot of things in this, in the novella that's nudging other things in the Stephen King universe. So if you're a fan of Stephen King, it echoes broadly in your mind. But in the movie, you don't have that echo chamber. You just have the echo chamber of other Stephen King movies. And that is places we've been before. We have a lot of Stephen King narratives where a guy comes back to the place where he grew up, remembered a tragic or horrific event from that past, while coming to terms with who he is and where he is now. I mean, that is well-worn territory. And here it is again. Enough said? (laughs) Enough said. I can only have one food for the rest of my life. That's easy. Pass. Cherry flavor pass. No question about it. I like to go someplace where nobody knows me. We found him. We got dibs. 
We better start running, eyeball. They got dams. There's four of us, eyeball. We just make you move. You're dead. For some, it's the last real taste of innocence. I'm never gonna get out of this town now, my glory. You can do anything you want, man. And the first real taste of life. This is really a good time. The most a blast. But for everyone, it's the time that memories are made of. So darling, darling, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. Oh, stand. Stand by me. Stand by me. So, Mick, uh, how do you know if a Frenchman's been in your backyard? <laughs> Your, wait, I don't remember. Your dog is pregnant and your garbage is empty? That is correct. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I had to Thank you for that. <laughs> I, uh, I rewatched Stand By Me for the podcast, and a lot of times I apologize to my guests, or I guess twice now I've apologized to my guests for, for making them watch movies, but this time I'm going to thank you for making me rewatch Stand By Me. Because it had been a really long time since I'd watched Stand By Me. I think even when I got my hands on the DVD, I might have actually just watched like the documentary, but not actually sat down and watched the movie itself. It had been a good number of years since I watched it. And this was a movie that I watched the fuck out of when I was a little kid. Like, I watched it a lot. And when I finished watching it again... After literally wiping some tears out of my eyes, I thought to myself... I want to watch this with my son. I want to watch Stand By Me with Owen. He just turned 12, so he's a little bit young for a lot of the content, but I don't care. I think we're going to have to sit down and watch Stand By Me. I think it's powerful. I mean, I'm obviously an easy mark right now, but where I am in my life, clearly, and uh, it was going to work on me, but I remember watching it as a kid, and it's sort of having elements that seemed forbidden, and watching it at the time I was the age of those kids. So just relating to it as a specific just adventure story, as a bunch of kids who get themselves in a crazy situation. And now I watch it from the perspective of the Richard Dreyfus character sitting at his uh, computer desk, uh, looking back on the past. And uh, I am not able to be rational about it. So I think Stand By Me is an amazing movie. I think it's an amazing movie. And it, the uphill battle that Rob Reiner must have faced in doing this, you have a cast completely of children. You have a cast completely of children that have to deal with very, very adult themes. And it's a period piece. And he was doing it on a low budget. And he knocked it right out of the park. Mm -hmm. I want to correct something I said in my previous Stephen King episode. I had uh, mistakenly given William Goldman credit for adapting... Uh, Stand By Me and Misery. Uh, I had it cross in my brain, a little dyslexic moment. He did not, in fact, adapt Stand By Me. He adapted Hearts in Atlantis. I had all of those movies stewing around Ooh, in my brain. Really? Yeah. I had all of those movies stewing around in my brain, and I, I flip-flopped that when I was talking in the previous episode. So I just wanted to take a beat here. William Goldman did not adapt Stand By Me. Uh, it was <laughs> somebody else. Uh, Reynold Gideon and Bruce A. Evans were responsible for the screenplay to Stand By Me. And it's a very, very faithful and strong adaptation of the body, a novella from different seasons. 
a very good book that somebody stole from me. <laughs> so, um, everybody in the movie gives strong performances, and almost everybody in the movie went on to become some measure of celebrity. But I think it is even further impressive when you realize this was one of Kiefer Sutherland's first acting jobs in the United States. Hmm. Right? It was like the kid who played uh, Vern, Jerry O'Connell, one of his first gigs, period. <laughs> you know? Uh, Will Wheaton and uh, River Phoenix were experienced actors, and the most experienced of the bunch would have been Corey Feldman. But uh, Corey Feldman, I'd always thought, was a fine enough kid actor. I think Corey Feldman is really good in this movie. As much as he may have grown up into somebody that we all sort of make fun of, uh, legit, he gave a very strong performance with a very difficult character. So I'm gushing. I'm just gushing and gushing and gushing about Stand By Me. This story about a group of kids who set out on a quest to see a dead body and in so doing basically end their childhood. <laughs> so I guess I will take a breath and let you speak. Sorry, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, similarly to Shawshank, it's a great adaptation with very little you can say bad about it. You know, the the music is great the acting is great um actually the uh the version i watched the dvd i borrowed was the 30th anniversary edition right or or no a deluxe edition anyway and it had a uh, a featurette talking with stephen king and uh rob reiner and one of the interesting things that stories that rob reiner told was that you know um the he got the kids together quite a bit ahead of time so that they could, you know, get to know each other and, and be able to play off each other and stuff. So most of it was going just great. And But when they filmed the train scene where they're um, running in front of the train and almost being hit, it just, he wasn't getting the intensity. So, you know, he ended up having to yell at Jerry O'Connell and, and Will Wheaton and kind of be mean to them. To, and he was telling them things like, you know, you're going to ruin the movie if you don't get it right. And just, you know, like the little kids. It turned into a mini Kubrick all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But, um, you know, and so he got the tears and, and he got it, you know, I mean, the, the shot is fantastic. And of course he, you know, after they were all done, he apologized and explained what he was doing and everything. So, so they're cool. They're yeah. cool after, but you know, it's just interesting to, interesting to hear that. I mean, so many of the little stories surrounding the movie are, are really cute. Like the, um, at the beginning when they're in their little tree house and they, um, they hear a knock, but Vern, of course, can't remember the, the secret, the secret knock. knock. Yeah. And they all go, Vern, that was kind of ad-libbed. It was Will Wheaton's suggestion. So they got to, you know, they got to, to play and, and do stuff. So it sounds like, you know, the making of the movie was, was just, as, just as successful as the movie itself. He allowed the kids to feel like creative collaborators, which you are if you're an actor. You just are, but you don't necessarily understand it as that when you're a kid. Um. Yeah, we were talking sort of in a negative light when we were talking about Hearts in Atlantis about how well-worn a, a, 
material this is. And all of those criticisms that I launched against uh, Hearts and Atlantis could be launched against Sam by me as far as it dealing almost exclusively in nostalgia and melancholy, and even worse, having the main character being a writer trying to find himself. I mean, how many times have we seen that? How many times have we seen that? A lot is the answer. But have we ever seen it done better than Stand By Me? I can't think of an example. I think Gordy, the Will Wheaton, I mean, he's basically grown up to become king nerd on his throne. <laughs> and good for him. He's got his own little corner of the playground. I think he gives a layered, deep performance here. But yeah, his brother died in a tragic accident and his brother was the star and light of the family. He was the firstborn. He was the, you know, the one that was preferred, just understood because there he was. And uh, there's that horrible, horrible, you're not sure if it actually happened or if it's a dream where he is, uh, has this memory of being at his brother's funeral and his father putting his hand on his shoulder and <sighs> saying, it should have been you. Brutal, Yikes. brutal, and asking a little kid to get that, like, it, like when I watched that as a little kid, I didn't understand that scene. Like, I just understood that I couldn't fucking believe that Ace stole his baseball cap. And not only did Ace stole the baseball cap, he never gets his baseball cap back. That's right up there with the dude never getting his rug back. Like, <laughs> I cannot fucking believe that, that like this. You're so on his side before the journey even begins. So that once the journey begins, once they have the adventure with the train and the adventure in the junkyard and the horrifying chapter with the eels, that you celebrate with them when they have that moment of levity and tell the puke story and that you laugh along with them when they're talking about, you know, Annette from the Disney kids growing boobs, you know, <laughs> and then smoking a cigarette and pretending to be all sophisticated by having a cigarette after a meal. It's... It should be completely cheesy, but it is utterly charming and more so moving. Like, I gotta say, the movie kind of sideswiped me. For a movie that I'd seen so many times, when I watched it again, the emotional impact of it really landed with me. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I've gone all soft, Mick. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> uh, this is another adaptation where I think... Um changes made were good decisions yeah um from from the novella um and i'm not sure if anybody i mean one of the big changes is that at the end when they're facing down ace and his his buddies the guy holding the gun is uh is gordy instead of, and in the book it's chris that's right so, that's right um i think that um that was a good decision because it's, I mean, Gordy's the one telling the story, and Gordy's the one who grows the most by sort of, um, you know, turning into the, well, being a tough guy in that situation. It's more of a stretch for Gordy than it is for Chris. Yeah. Um, so I think I think that was a good choice. I don't know. What do you think? I actually, yeah, in the I'm so locked into the movie that I just remembered that as you were saying it. That's right. It was actually it wasn't Gordy in the book who stands up to or or who fends the bullies away. Um, it, it makes it, it's more of a better, strong character moment for Gordy than it would be mm -hmm. for Chris at that point. So, like, I definitely understand that. And since he's telling us a story, I understand it. But. Uh, 
the repercussions are never really gone into. Like, Ace is one of Stephen King's super, like, super crazy greaser villains who's just, like, a bad person, yeah. wants to do bad things, will kick and kill a puppy or a kitty just for shits and giggles. And there would be a price to pay for defying Ace and his gangs like this. Like, the next day that Ace and his gang of hooligans are not magically gone, Gordy and Chris right. are going to have to deal with this, and we don't know how or when that happens, right? Right, and in the book, it does fucking happen. They yeah. get the shit kicked out of them. But like, in it, that it respect, there. it makes more sense that Chris would be the one with the gun and not Gordy. But in the movie, yeah. we want it to be Gordy. And when he gives that bully that line, it's one of those great sort of movie moments because you never get to say it in, in real life. Are you going to just shoot me, kid? Are you going to shoot all of us? No, Ace. Just you. Just you. <laughs> yeah. That is the correct answer. That is the correct answer. That's how you deal with a bully. Because a bully is a coward. Right? Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, and then we, I mentioned it with Anton Yelchin. I have to mention it with River Phoenix here. There's no way that Rob Reiner could have predicted what was going to happen with, with River Phoenix. But that last scene we see of him walking away where he fades out of the picture, just him, but not the rest is like, it's, it's so crazy impactful now. Like, uh, there's extra weight put on it because of real world events, but it does nothing but enhance the picture. I mean... It sounds fucking morbid to say, but River Phoenix gave this movie more power with his death. <laughs> because that's what happens to the character in, in the story. He he does fight his way out of poverty. He does fight his way out of Castle Rock. He does become a lawyer. And then he interrupts an argument in a restaurant and gets killed for no good reason. And uh, yep. that's what our character is dealing with. That's what uh, him finding out uh, that this that his old friend had passed away, someone he hadn't even thought about in many years, sort of spurs this recollection, which spurs him to write this book, which turns out to be the body. Uh, what do you think about this journey that the kids are on? I've always thought this was something that even as a kid I connected to, but it could never really articulate the the idea that there's a dead body of a boy their age. And they want to walk for a day so that they can see it. And they talk about it a little bit like they'll be famous for finding him. Everybody's trying to look for this kid. But I don't think it's about finding him. I don't think it's about being heroes. You know, that whole not this way Teddy scene. But they want to see this dead body. Mm-hmm. They want to see this thing, this big secret. Oh, yeah. I think it's it's totally plausible. When you're that kid, you get an idea in your head and you just do it. You're not going to think you don't um, you don't think of the consequences. They didn't even remember to bring food. Yeah, they're just, you know, they're going on an adventure. You know, I mean, but like what's the best case scenario for them? They're going to walk. They're going to walk a body back. All that way on the train lines, they're going to carry this kid's corpse into town where they'll be, you know, celebrated as heroes. No, I don't I don't think even even in their little kid logic, they believe that I think there's something about wanting to confront death to wanting to see concretely that that's a real thing. And I remember even as a little kid, I've seen a lot of horror movies. Even at that time, I was well scarred. There's something disturbing about the corpse. 
there's something disturbing about these kids looking at this open-eyed, frozen, dead thing, you know? Uh, the movie is powerful. I keep going back there. Um, I'm going to show it to my son, and uh, I will not be the first father to do so. <laughs> Uh, it's considering the fact that it does star kids it has very adult content like I say that joke that I started the review with was not me just being shitty to make it was a, it was a direct <laughs> quote no they the tell that joke <laughs> um, so if you're uncomfortable with hearing kids say grown up things or smoking cigarettes or being violent you know or just the discussion of abuse the idea that uh, Eddie had his ear held to a stove by Ugh. his dad like we don't see it it's just described but it was disturbing to me even as a kid you know and the fact that that same kid defends his bo his father when when the junkyard owner is talking shit about his dad Teddy loses his fucking mind right you don't talk bad about my abuser. <laughs> How dare you? And the kids don't think about it. They don't even think about it within the context of the story. They just leave it to us to think about it. And, uh, wow. Have have I said enough? Have we gone on enough about <laughs> I feel like I rolled over you, girl. I don't mean to. No, not at all. No, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't think I have anything to add. Uh, I don't know if you remember in the book... Um, this is something that wasn't really discussed at all in the movie, um, past the fact that we know that the narrator is a writer. But in the book, he um, there's an excerpt of a story that he wrote, kind of right. giving us a sample of his writing, and and I guess it's meant to give us, you know, more of an idea of how his past informed his got, writing. Yeah, or? yeah. Except that I I don't know I didn't. I don't know I how you would that put was that in the movie. Necessary. I, I don't know. I'd have to reread it, but I, I don't know how you would even do that in the movie. Yeah, and I'm, I'm I don't know. I probably shouldn't have brought it up. I don't think it should be in the movie. But <laughs> no, but it's <laughs> just one of the differences from the book. And you're right because the adaptation is pretty pretty authentic for the most part. At least the beats of the story. There's a few changes here and there, obviously, but. Um, it's a star-studded movie made by a, a director I have a lot of respect for, uh, at least for the first 15 years of his career. Rob Reiner's kind of been a sadder tale the deeper into his career you go. But for a while there, I mean, he brought us he, he brought us Spinal Tap. He brought us Stand By Me. He brought us The Princess Bride. You know, like, respect. Thank you so much for coming. Well, coming. You're, you're sitting in comfortably in your own home. Thank you for doing this podcast. It has been cool to talk to you again. It's it's been a long time. And thanks for Likewise. feeding feeding the nostalgia demon. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then we have to make offerings to the nostalgia demon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you're welcome to come back should you so choose. Uh, it, it, 
Open door. Just saying. Putting it out there. Awesome. How would you rank these six Stephen King adaptations and why? All right. Number six, The Mangler. What? <laughs> I know. Well, <laughs> I think we've said enough about it, but I will add, actually, I'm not one to um, put much stock into IMDb ratings, but right. I always look and see what the rating is just to see if I agree or whatever. And the Mangler had a rating of 3.9. That's pretty generous. And, well, it actually is because the this is actually an inflated rating because when I went to read the reviews, there were several 10-star ratings <laughs> in, in the reviews of people saying, you know, people just don't understand. People e are too hard on this movie. Either they were in the movie, they knew somebody in the movie, or they're <laughs> mentally ill. I cannot yes. defend the man, Claire. <laughs> right. So that's number six. Number five, uh, Mercy. Actually, I had more of a hard time deciding my five and four, four being Hearts in Atlantis, just because um, I didn't think Hearts in Atlantis was that interesting, but Mercy ended up being lower because it just um, sucked the fear right out of that story. Yeah. And also they couldn't be bothered to dig a proper hole. So that's number five. That really number fucking four. stuck in your crotch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Learn how to dig a hole, you asshole. <laughs> number four, Hearts in Atlantis. I don't think I have anything else to say. Oh, well, maybe just that um, the heartfelt moments in this movie were really, really... Um, too much. I mean, when Anthony Hopkins is going away in the car, he says something like, uh, I, I, I wouldn't have changed it for the world or something like that. I wouldn't and, change a minute of it. Not a minute. I don't regret a yeah, minute. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing was just, just too much. Number three and number two were the most difficult um, for very different reasons. I mean, we just talked about Stand By Me. Um, I liked it in I mean I love that movie so many different ways and The Shining I mean finally I ended up putting the, the Stand By Me in number 3 and The Shining in number 2 because The Shining just has so many memorable scenes and so many memorable moments and even though they both I mean I'll both I'll watch both of them many more times in my life um that's just what I ended up deciding. Right. And I mean, from what you said an hour ago about the adaptation playing into your review, I have a feeling that you're going to put the Stand By Me higher than The Shining. But that leaves number one, Shawshank Redemption. No question. A safe case. Yep. That's a really good list, Mick. We're very, very, very close. I feel bad. We're so close, but alas, no cigar. Uh, you're 100% right in, 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 in where we switch, but I'll go through it anyway, because that is my right as host of this podcast. Um, in Tabernacle! <laughs> in sixth place is comfortably The Mangler. Might be one of the worst movies I've reviewed on the podcast. <laughs> Even that one you destroyed? The Dreamcatcher one? 
the dream? No, no, the the one oh. you physically destroyed with Jeremy that time. <laughs> yes, Day of the Dead Two Contagium. Yeah, I don't even have the option of rewatching that, but for some reason the mangler is going to sit on my shelf to mock my existence. <laughs> as, uh, as of getting, as soon as I get this adaptation of the Kennedy novel that James Franco did, I will have every single Stephen King adaptation from 1976 really? to 2016. Wow. Every wow. single one of them. Holy shit. Humble, well done. A not so humble brag, or it's just a pathetic brag, but I have those all. And they will be talked about on Rank and Review. Every single Sorry, one. Sorry, there's of them. one more thing we forgot to say about the mangler. Oh, bring it. Bring it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, let's keep talking about the mangler. <laughs> let's keep this sucker alive. <laughs> okay, when the evil boss is standing up overlooking the machine eating a lady, <laughs> do you remember what he says? He says, Hell's Bells. Hell's Bells, <laughs> Ethel. Hell's Bells. Uh, and that's class. not even a terrible line that they pulled out of the book. That was just probably a moment of genius in, in Robert Englund. Yeah, no, no. The Mangler is so easily the worst of these of these movies. And it's one of the worst movies I reviewed on the podcast. Uh, please, please spare yourself The Mangler. I mean, that's the public service that Rankin Review is really supplying. If you haven't seen The Mangler, I just saved you 96 minutes of your life. Seriously, I'm not even joking. Uh, Mercy is in fifth place. Again, I really liked the story, really found the story frightening, which made the fact that the movie was boring and not scary kind of a pretty epic fail. Um, it sounds like I liked Hearts in Atlantic slightly more than you did, but I seem to be having a mini midlife crisis. So, <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure a, 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 an insurance commercial could probably make me cry <laughs> these days. So, we'll just get that medicated and sorted out. Uh, I think it's fine. It's a fine enough movie, but it's, like I said, it came and went and everybody forgot it. And that's kind of where I land on it. I don't care deeply enough to be angry with it, but it didn't leave any kind of impression. Controversially, I'm putting The Shining in third place. I screwed it up, Mick. You're disappointed, I can tell. <laughs> but uh, Well, I'm not disappointed in your list. I'm disappointed that I didn't... Well, I mean, because I knew as soon as you said it yeah. that that was happening. You know, when it's, you said, it's going to show in my ranking, yeah. I should have switched my numbers, but no, I'm sticking by what I wrote down. You're not going to cook the books. And I don't want the fact that The Shining, this classic movie, is ranking in third position to sound like I'm not a huge fan of The Shining, because I am a huge fan of The Shining. I believe I gave it number two in my favorite horror movies of the 80s. So I think I've done this movie a lot of lip service. But what are we talking about this week? We're talking about adaptations of Stephen King's work. And as an adaptation of the novel The Shining, there are problems. It still remains a terrifying and brilliantly made movie, but it's not a great adaptation, so that was the excuse that I gave to wedge Stand By Me into second place. Uh, it, it's a movie that I've loved, that I'm maybe not completely irrational, or completely rational about, but uh, I really love Stand By Me. Um, and upon watching it again, I mean, maybe I'll have to watch Princess Bride again. It might be one of my favorite movies that he's done. And I love The Princess Bride. 
So um, big praise to Rob Reiner. Big praise to that cast of kids. You know what, Corey Feldman, if you want to make terrible pop music for the rest of your life, you just go right ahead, buddy. You'll always have Stand By Me. Big fan. Shawshank Redemption is a bona fide classic. Long after the two of us have shuttled off this mortal coil, I think people will be watching and talking about Shawshank Redemption. I think it is a timeless movie, and it's number one. There it was, girl. We said it. We did it. We recorded a podcast on Stephen King. How did that feel? Did that go okay for you? <laughs> yeah, I like talking. I'm I'm still disappointed. Sorry. <laughs> you're you're let down by the match. list. <laughs> I promised myself I wouldn't cheat. I promise. Like, there's been a few times like when people have been so close, and I'm not passionate enough about the list. Like, really, I I agree enough with you that we should, but I. I just want to keep it real, you know? <laughs> but it's valid. I mean, your points are, are totally valid. It's just that... That couldn't have been easy for you to say, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so, such a gracious host. Thanks, Larry. Thank you so much for doing it. Um, uh, this episode will be coming out actually relatively shortly. I think you're going to be episode 84. Anything you'd like to say to the kids on the interwebs? Oh, I didn't prepare anything. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> you got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> Keep listening to Rank and Review. And if you're listening to this podcast for the first time because you're an acquaintance of Mick, uh, I drop every two weeks. And uh, uh, it's a good show, right? <laughs> it's a good show. So ends episode 84 of Rankin Review. Larry talks Stephen King with his ex-girlfriend. <laughs> Good times. Uh, thanks so much, Mireille, for participating in Rankin Review. Uh, maybe we'll hear you again someday. Um, and if anybody wants to send me feedback, they should do that. They should send me feedback at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And uh, you can find the show on Facebook. You can find the show on iTunes. Hopefully RankingReview.ca has had this nice makeover long since this episode has aired. So uh, go check out the new shiny page. And as always, please tell a friend about Rank and Review. And as always, thank you so much for supporting my podcast. Until next we speak, this is your host and random Canadian. Thank you so much, you guys. <laughs>